let's go ahead and open up our our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to get right into it so we can get some time in the Word, and then we will take communion at the end and, and be done. We are continuing our study of beginnings. We were looking at the, the book of Genesis, and this was always our plan to only go up to the story of Abraham. And so we started at Genesis 1 with creation, and we talked about creation. We talked about uh, things like work that Adam, Adam was given. Adam and Eve were given meaningful labor in the garden. We've talked about the, the relationship between men and women that emerged, that, was, that, that we're being taught in the very beginnings of, of Genesis. We, of course, talked about the fall. We talked about the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And then we've shifted our course a little bit in the last several weeks to talk about what is God's answer to the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They, they, um, they sinned before God. They rebelled against him. What was the plan that God revealed to Adam and Eve. And so we've looked at Genesis 3.15 as being kind of the main verse that identified for them at that time, the verse that identified the, the, the answer, so to speak, that God is giving to the problem of the broken relationship of mankind to God because of sin. And we looked at the fact that this there was one who was going to come, who we called him, we call him the snake crusher here. That's what I've been using in this sermon series. The one who was going to come according to Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent. And we saw that associated with that crushing would be a reversal of the curse. That, that, that the experience of humans that we still experience today, that we're still longing for, they were longing for then. And that was to be, that was to be freed from this curse that we experience in this world, the brokenness of the world. And we saw that this one, this seed of Eve, the word literally is seed in Hebrew. One of her offspring would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And so we've been looking for that. We saw it in, in Genesis 4. We were looking for Cain to maybe be the one. Remember this, those of you that were with us. But right away, we see that he's not the one. We see that he sins very, very quickly in that, uh, in that and, 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 and pushes us away as we got to look for another. We got to look for another. And we went, Patrick preached last week on Noah as this other potential one. And we saw Patrick preach that for, you know, for hundreds of years, Noah was seemed to be obedient before the Lord. And it even the Bible even said he was a righteous man. And yet in a seemingly small sin, and I appreciate that he made this particular point in a seemingly small sin by our standards. All right. He, 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 he disobeys God and we find and we learn that whoever the hero is that's going to come and reverse this curse has to be perfectly obedient. And we found out that Noah was not the one. And now we are, we are about to find out more about who this one is, this snake crusher who's going to come. So this morning, I want to look at two texts in our Bibles that, that are referring, that are the Lord speaking to Abraham. Okay, so we don't have time, unfortunately, to look at the whole story of Abraham. The whole, whole story of Abraham lasts 10 chapters. And what we're going to do is next summer, we're going to come back and we're going to do a series on the patriarchs. And we're actually going to follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and on into the end of Genesis. But, um, but for our purposes this Sunday right now, we're actually not going to look at his life. 
what we're going to look at is two particular instances where God spoke to Abraham and promised him something. And we're interested in that promise. We are interested, given Genesis 3.15, the promise that one would eventually come and end this curse, we are now interested in what God has to say to, to Abraham about that particular promise. So Genesis 12, one through three, hopefully you have your Bibles there. You have your, your, uh, your Bibles open there. I would also ask you to open up and get a finger or a bookmark or something, if you have paper Bibles, to Genesis 22. Okay, so, get, so be ready to flip between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, because we're going to be doing a bit of that uh, over the next few minutes together. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me give you a little bit of context. God is calling Abram. By the way, his name is Abram at one point. Later in the story, his name will be changed by God to Abraham. Now, that's, that's part of the promise. We're not going to get into that, but I, w- I don't want you to be confused that at one point we're talking about a guy named Abram, and at one p- point we're talking about a guy named Abraham. It's the same guy. God has a way of changing people's names sometimes, and, and, we'll, and we won't talk about that today, but that's just, just so you know. So, so God is calling a man named Abram in Genesis 12 out of his previous country, Okay, out of a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, and 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 all you need to know about that is that is a cosmopolitan city of the time, very cosmopolitan city. And he's calling him to go to a place where Abraham does not even know. And it was a land named Canaan, and it would have been the backwoods, right? You're going from the cosmopolitan city to the backwoods. You're leaving your family, all of the support system that you have, and you're going to the backwoods where there is nobody. And I want you to trust me. I want you to, to, to be obedient to what I'm telling you, even though you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And Genesis 12 is really about that. Now, I want to read both texts. Now, Genesis 12, Genesis 22. And let me give you the context of Genesis 22 real quick. Abraham has just almost sacrificed Isaac up on the mountain. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the story. Let me give you just a couple sentences. God calls Abraham to sacrifice the very son that he had been promised for many, many years. Abraham had waited for this son. He was chi- Sarah was childless, his wife, and they had waited for many, many years for this son. God has a son. And Abraham, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to, I want you to take him up to the mountain, and 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 you're going to sacrifice him. And it's one of those shocking stories, right? And, 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 and I would love to spend a bunch of time to kind of go into what exactly is happening there. It is a command of obedience that is on the extreme. And Abraham is willing to trust God. Now, what was going through Abraham's mind in that moment? I don't know, but he was willing to trust God and he does trust God and he has the knife raised when he is stopped by the Lord. And the Lord said, you were willing. There was a willingness to obey me, even though you didn't know what the answer was going to be. So I want, I want you to see that both of these, these verses come at the, on the tail end of either a command for obedience or an actual obedience that Abraham lived out. First one, Genesis 12, go. He hadn't yet gone, but God said, go. But then as a result of your going here, here's what I'm going to bless you with. And then Genesis 22 is because you just did that. Here's how I'm going to bless you. All right, so I want you guys to see that. Let's let's look at the text together now. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go 
from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, that's as far as we're gonna get in Genesis 12. Now, again, let's go to the other instance where God speaks now in Genesis 22. And let's read that text and get that text in front of us. Remember, this is after Abraham was faithful in trusting God through this whole sacrifice of, of his son. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, all I wanna do over the next few minutes is point out three similarities between these two texts and talk about what that means for us. And then I wanna point out one glaring difference between these two texts. And I wanna talk about what that means for us. So I'm hoping to keep this concise and we'll be together for, a, for you know, maybe the next 15, 20 minutes. So bear with me in the heat and let's work through this text now. Let's look at three similarities between these two texts. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Blessing follows obedience. That's number one. Well, to, the first thing we notice from these two texts is that blessing follows obedience. So again, as I've already explained, the context of both of these moments where God is speaking to Abraham is that there is an obedience that either is about to be worked by Abraham or has been worked by Abraham. And God says, because of that, I'm going to bless you. Now, my point is not, into, not to get into the details of how these obediences were worked or, or, or the, the particular stories behind them, but I would like to talk about the idea of conditional blessing this morning. Conditional blessing. Now, that might strike some of you as being a little odd. That might strike some of you as being, I don't know if that's true to maybe what I have heard before. The idea of a condition being in the way of blessing. There's a condition that needs to be met before the blessing comes. It might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. We're used to talking about, aren't we? God's unconditional love. Have you heard that before? God's unconditional love. And we use it a lot. We'll sing, it will be in our songs. It will be in, in sermons that get preached. We talk a lot about God's unconditional love. Now, I think I know what you mean and, and, and what I mean when I say unconditional love. I, I think I know. And, and we're gonna talk about what I think that means in just a second. But, but here's what you have to hear first. And I, I wanna say this as boldly as I can declare it. All of God's love is conditional. All of it, all of God's love is conditional. God's love in the Bible is what we call covenantal. 
It has to do with a covenant. Now, let me remind you, what is a covenant? It's an agreement between two parties to live in such a way with one another in a relationship. It involves an, an agreement between two parties to live in a certain way in a relationship. So your relationship with God is covenantal because it involves a covenant. So therefore your relationship with God is conditional. Your blessings that you receive from him are conditional. Your salvation <gasps> is conditional. Now, before you throw me out, okay, and you send me away from this pulpit, what is the condition? What is the condition? The condition for your relationship with God is perfect righteousness. Perfect you remember last week when Patrick preached, did any of you get the idea that, you know, Noah got drunk? I mean, I know that, that that's a sin, right? That's a sin, but you just like, oh man, the guy's been, for hundreds of years, the guy has been faithful. He, 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 he produces wine. He's a wine farmer. He's a vineyard owner, whatever you want to say. He drinks of the wine and he gets drunk in his tent. And it's like, that's it. What are we learning from that? We're learning from that, that the condition to a relationship with God is perfect righteousness. God doesn't relate with anyone who doesn't have it. It's not, I just, I get, I'm good enough. I, I, I'm, I'm reasonable with my neighbors. I don't murder. I don't, I don't do, you know, I don't commit anything other than, you know, uh, middle middle class sins. You ever heard of that? Middle class sins? Like, like Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Like I, my sins are respectable sins. They're they're the kinds of things where I could tell somebody like, oh, oh, that's not that bad. Friends, the condition for our relationship with God is perfect righteousness, which is why the world fell apart in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate a fruit. And again, we go, what? There's something the Bible is communicating to us. There is something the Bible wants to teach us. It fell apart when Adam and Eve failed to uphold their part of the commitment. Now, listen, here's where Here's where we come as Christians. Here's where you've got to hear me. And we have to understand this together as Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, Jesus Christ upheld the condition for God's love and salvation for you. You didn't. So is God's love conditional? Absolutely. Who fulfilled the condition that you could have the relationship with God? Jesus Christ. And not you. And so it should not be uh, confusing or difficult or uneasy for us to talk about God's conditional love because God's, God's love is not unconditional. Because to say God's love is unconditional is to say there's no need for the cross. But we live because of the cross. So be careful when we use the words unconditional salvation or unconditional love. Now, here's what I think you mean, and I mean. 
I think what people mean is that there's nothing stopping you from coming to Jesus, right? Is that not what we mean? There's nothing where Jesus goes, I don't know, what have you done for me lately? In coming to Christ, in coming to trust him for our salvation. It is entirely unconditional. It is not based upon your past obedience. It is not based upon your ethnicity or your socioeconomic class or, or anything that separates human beings on this planet. There is no person that says, well, I can't come because I haven't yet. So unconditional. Our coming to Jesus Christ is unconditional, but God's love is based upon the condition of us coming to Jesus Christ. So this is true when we go from, say, not being Christians, not being in Christ, to being in Christ. It is also true, and this gets this is harder now for us to wrestle with, it is also true inside of the Christian life that God's blessings follow obedience. I can live and act in a way that makes my heavenly father pleased. I can, you can. Inside of Christ as Christians, we can live in a way where he is pleased with that particular behavior, with that obedience, right? In fact, this is what we endeavor to do. We've been given new hearts by the Holy Spirit in order to live in such a way that, that, that God says, I am pleased by that. And I can live in a way that makes him upset with me, that, that arouses his fatherly displeasure and even discipline. And what does Hebrews 12 say? Discipline is not pleasant. But, but what does Hebrews 12 say? But it's the Lord disciplines those who are his sons, his children. If you get disciplined by the Lord, you're, you're experiencing his fatherly displeasure for a moment because he loves you. And that discipline might be hard. But there are blessings that come from obeying him in the Christian life. So there are no preconditions, just to sum up, to you coming to Jesus, but Jesus is the necessary precondition to your relationship with God. Let me say it one more time. There are no preconditions to you coming to Jesus. But Jesus is the necessary precondition to your relationship with God. There is no relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ, period. So God's love is very conditional. And God's blessings are conditional even inside the Christian life. Let's move on and let's notice something else about our text together. The first thing I had you notice was just simply the fact that blessing followed obedience. That God said, because you've done this, I'm going to bless you. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Abraham's seed are many and blessed. Okay, now we're going to talk about Abraham's now seed. Now the seed in the, seed in the Bible is just simply a way of talking about one's offspring, okay? But I'm gonna keep the word seed because I want you, I believe it's an important biblical word for us to keep as we're tracing this idea of seed all the way through the Bible. Abraham's seed are many and blessed. Look at Genesis 12, two. Let's just look carefully at the text. And I will make of you, God says, a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, I want to compare that to a verse in Genesis 22. So flip over there. 
Look at Genesis 22, 17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Okay, so this talk about seed or offspring is directly pointing back to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, Eve was told that her seed would be at war with the serpent seed. So we've already had this word appearing in Genesis, this idea of seed, your offspring. So all of a sudden in Genesis 12, we're now hearing this word again. It's no coincidence. We are supposed to see as we're reading from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, all of a sudden Abraham, this seed language is coming back to Abraham just like it had come to Eve. And at, in Genesis 3, we learned that it was the e, it was Eve's offspring or her seed. Now we're hearing that it's Abraham's offspring. Now, here's what we know so far. God says, I'm going to make, I'm going to give you multiple offspring, many, many offspring, so that you become, um, it says in Genesis 12 too, a great nation. And it says in Genesis 22, 17, as many as the stars of heaven or the sand on the seashore. So we found out in Genesis 3 that this one of Eve's seed was going to crush the head of the serpent. Now we don't have a clear answer yet on who that's going to be, but we are starting to get close. All of a sudden, this blessing language is happening. Have you notice this? Blessing. All of a sudden, God is blessing Abraham. What's going on with blessing? Now, I need to do something. I need to untrain your minds for a second. I need to get, I need to push delete on something in your gut that's already in all of your minds right now. And the reason it's in our minds is because we are 21st century Gentile Christians. And when we read our Bibles, we read it through that lens, okay? And so here's typically what comes into a person's mind when they think of blessing. They might think of, 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 of a priest or the Pope with hands, you know, in a certain way, moving their hands in a particular way and blessing a particular individual, right? So the, the Pope blessed me. That's a very Catholic idea, right? So you, you receive a blessing from someone and it kind of involves this, this thing, this, you know, he moves his hands in a particular way. He says certain words and you get blessed by that. Or you might just talk about somebody who did something really nice for you. And you say, what, what's our Christianese, right? Oh, brother, you blessed me so much. You blessed me with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying this is what enters our mind when we hear the words blessing in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. But I need to delete that from your mind for a moment. That is not what the Hebrew concept of blessing is. There is no Pope in the Old Testament doing this. There is no brothers and sisters in Christ doing great things for one another and saying, you, we're blessing one another. Isn't this great? That's not the context to Genesis. The context to Genesis is that there has been a curse. Anybody recognize the, the, the relationship between curse and blessing? You guys remember those SAT uh, questions? Curse is to this as blessing is to, you know, and you have to figure out what's the relationship between these two words. What's the relationship to curse and blessing in, in, in Genesis? They're antonyms. They are opposite of one another. So to, to bless is to remove the previous curse. If curse takes you on the negative direction on the number line, blessing takes you in the positive direction on the number line. Don't think of it as a person moving their hands. Think of it as the reversal of curse. Because in the Old Testament, it is always set apart as the opposite of cursing. There's a point where Moses sends up people on the mountains. 
both mountains. And he says, okay, you people over here, read the blessings that come from obedience. This is at the end of Deuteronomy, by the way. You people over here, read the blessings that come with obedience. You people over here, read the curses that come with disobedience. And they would read on the hillsides to one another. And it was meant to be opposites. Curse, blessing is the opposite of cursing. Now, why is that important here? We've just been cursed, friends. Genesis 3, we were just cursed. And all of a sudden, blessing language is coming. Whoa, we're looking for the one who's going to reverse this. We're looking for the one that's actually going to end this curse. And, and now all of a sudden, we get the word bless come from the Lord. He's blessing somebody here. So what does this mean? Something is happening and we don't know yet what it is. We don't have all the information, but somehow Abraham's seed is getting blessed. Now we've been looking for the seed from Eve. Now all of a sudden we've narrowed it down to somebody in Abraham's line is gonna be the one that brings this blessing. Okay, now let's, get, let's go even further in this. And, and the third thing I want to share with you is Abraham's seed will be a blessing to others. Abraham's seed will be a blessing to others. We remember from Genesis 3.15 that the, the, the one who defeats the curse is going to happen through obedience where Adam was disobedient and, and there's going to be a curse that's lifted because of that. Noah, by the way, was named rest because maybe he would be the one that would actually do this and lift the curse. But notice the end of Genesis 12.3. The very end of Genesis 12.3 says this. In you, Abraham, in you, mysterious two words right there. What does that mean? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Think, don't, don't think this, think curse reversal. All of the families of the earth are gonna experience a curse reversal in you, Abraham. What does that mean, in you? Does that mean Abraham's the one doing it? Look at Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18, it explains it. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Let's make sure we've got some of the details here. Genesis 12, 3, in you, Abraham. Genesis 22, 18, in your offspring. That's not different. That's the one explaining the other one. What does it mean to be in Abraham? It means that there are descendants that are going to come from Abraham. There's a descendant that's going to come from Abraham that's going to reverse this curse. Genesis 12, 3 made it kind of sound like Abraham was doing the blessing, but if we get Genesis 22, 18 says that it's in Abraham, meaning the offspring of Abraham. Now, what else do we see? Genesis 12, 3 says families, the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, but Genesis 22, 18 says the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is an extremely significant word in the rest of the Bible. Very, very important word, the word nations, the peoples, the the, the nations outside of Israel, the Gentiles. That's what the word means. For instance, we see in Isaiah 49, 6, here's what he says. God is talking. God is talking to the, the Messiah, basically, at this point. The two of them are having a conversation. Here's what God says to his Messiah. It is too light a thing, he says to the Messiah, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay, that was, that's not enough. To save the Jews is not enough, is what God says to his servant in Isaiah. Here's what he says. I will make you as a light for the nations. 
the nations, the Gentile nations who are not Jewish, who are outside of the land of Israel, I'm going to make you a light for them that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Why is the word nations in Genesis 22 so important? Because this one who's going to come from Abraham is going to be a, he is going to be a blessing curse reversal for the nations. The very people that in Isaiah, we read that the Messiah is going to go to and be a light to. Okay. Now, those are three things that we saw that were similarities. Let's look. We're going to end with just a few more words here on the one difference. Genesis 22, 17. And I have shared this with some of you before. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Only Genesis 22, as I've got sweat in my eyes. Woo, only Genesis 22 has says anything about a conflict. Okay. Everything in Genesis 12 was that, there's going to be somebody comes from you. They're going to receive, they're going to bless the world. We don't exactly know how, but they just, we just know that a blessing is coming for the world. A reversal of the curse is coming. Only Genesis 22, 18 talks about conflict. Why is conflict interesting to us? Genesis chapter three said that one of Eve's offsprings would, would overthrow the curse by, by, by specifically being at enmity at war with one of the offspring of the serpents and that he would crush his head in the conflict and receive a wound on his heel in the conflict. Here, one of Abraham's offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Notice it's not their enemies. Notice it's not a plural. Notice it's not a group of people who are going to possess the gates of their enemies. It's his, one person. So here is a specific verse about Abraham's offspring in battle, and it's third person singular. That's significant. That is really significant. Now, it doesn't say who the offspring is. It does say that the gates of the enemies are overtaken. What does that mean? Gates are defensive. He's going after them. He is destroying what previously was a stronghold, a defensive position of his enemies. And it is now, boom, it's his. He will possess it, meaning he owns that particular, that particular battle. Now, I've shared this with some of you before, but I think this is absolutely fascinating. Matthew 16, 18, here's what Jesus says to Peter. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe that Matthew 16 is what we call an echo of Genesis 22, 17. That it is, it is a New Testament verse of Jesus fulfilling what, what Genesis 22 said that the Messiah would do, which was to possess the gates of his enemies. Now, here's, here's the shocking thing, friends, and this is what I want to end with. Who's doing it in Matthew? Who, are the, who, who is actually doing the work in Matthew? You, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. 
This is, I, I gotta admit, this is mind, this is one of those things that is mind blowing because here's what we have to do to understand this text rightly. We have to link the church as its true name. You know what its true name is? The body of Christ. So Jesus, here's how I can sum this up, I think. Jesus began the work of defeating the gates of the enemy as he said he would do in Genesis 22. He broke the back of the enemy through the cross. But as you know, the cross as an act in itself does not save people. The act of proclaiming Christ's work on the cross and the believing of that proclamation and the taking in of Christ for oneself is what saves a person. We don't get to just declare victory when the cross happened. The church, however, by the power of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing work of Christ to continue to save the nations, to continue to go to the Gentiles and bring that work, the news of that work to unbelievers, that unbelievers would hear of that, would respond to that and say, that's for me. I want him for me. And the church continues that work until he returns. Friends, this is, this is remarkable to me because we are called to the battle along with our Lord. In fact, when we fight the battle, it is the Lord fighting the battle. That's what I think this says. So we have a responsibility and a job, and I'm not going to spend more time. I want to spend more time breaking down what that means, but because of the heat and because of where we're at at this point in the sermon, we're going to end it with that. But I want to leave you as you walk away this Sunday, just with one thought. You are called to be the hands and the feet of Christ. You are called to be his mouthpiece. You are called to do the work that he would have done on this earth. And that begins with proclamation of the gospel. And so we should be about it, church. We should be about it because we find ourselves caught up in this Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is in the process of working out and fulfilling. And here we are doing it. It's incredible to me. So let's enjoy the fact that we get to be used by the Lord to finish the task that he began on the cross. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for keeping our minds alert, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would have a burden and a passion, even in the midst of COVID, to see that we have a responsibility to live out what you have commanded us to do. We are your body, meaning that when we act, you are acting in some respect, respects. So God, may we find our place in that. May we find a joy in acting as, the, as your church. God, thank you for Echo Church. Thank you for this church that you have raised up by, by your grace, for your glory. And I pray that we would be faithful to the call that you have given us, that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not stand against it. I pray that we would be the kinds of Christians where we could, that could actually be said about us, that the gates of hell did not stand against Echo Church. God, may it be true. And it's only by your grace that it would be. We pray this in your name. Amen.